I'm not afraid. Are you? The Watchman Speaks discusses biblical solutions to modern-day dilemmas. I'll tell you the truth, even if it's not what you want to hear. I am the old watchman, Ezekiel. I pray you listen. Welcome to The Watchman Speaks. I'm your host, Lonnie Richardson. Watchman, how far gone is the night? Well, we're entering into the third watch, six hours into the night, also known as the midnight watch. This watch is from midnight to 3 a.m. But before I delve into the third watch, I'd like to clarify my position. That way we're all on the same page. First, I present these watches as a means of Bible study to bring attention to something that is overlooked in the Bible and rarely, if ever, spoken of. I am not saying that if you do not adhere to these watches that your salvation is at risk. I never said that. But the watches, these blocks of time, are something that God and the Son obviously adhered to, and I'll show you that in Scripture. If they adhered to these watches, then these watches must hold some measure of importance. Secondly, I associate these watches to prayer, and I have manned every watch at one time or another. I have stood watch and prayed during this third watch for years while I worked on the third shift from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. Sometimes I have manned the second and third watch simply because I was awakened in the night and I felt the desire to pray. Thirdly, I pray during these watches because I want to not because I feel like I have to. There is a big difference between having a prayer life and seeking God. Having a prayer life is not a bad thing, but praying to merely rack up hours is moot. It's the force driving you to your knees is personal motivation to be, quote, unquote, a good Christian. Seeking God in prayer, on the other hand, is to chase after God in prayer, to know God, develop a relationship with God, to trust God. David knew this. Let me give you a brief example. Psalm 54 is a short little song, but it is rich in power and impact that each of us can relate to if we read it carefully and pray to understand David and his motives in prayer. And Psalm 54 reads, Save me, O God, by your name, and vindicate me by your power. Hear my prayer, O God. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me, and violent men have sought my life. They have not set God before them. Selah. In these three verses, we have the signal flare, the distress call. David has sent out the SOS. David is crying out to God, help me. David is taking the fight to God. Verses 4 and 5 read, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the sustainer of my soul. He will recompense the evil to my foes. Destroy them in your faithfulness. Oh, now, in these two verses, 
David has remembered who God is. David is talking to himself about God. He is turning away from bringing the fight first to God and has begun to bring God into the fight. Verses 6 and 7. Willingly I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from all trouble, and my eye has looked with satisfaction upon my enemies. Notice how David has switched the motive of his prayer here. He has gone from telling God about his trouble, knowing full well that God knows his trouble. He left that behind and began talking to himself about God and God's abilities to save him when he cannot save himself. And lastly, he's giving praise, glory, honor, and thanksgiving to God for having already delivered him from his enemies. There's only one thing I need to mention. David's situation and circumstances have not changed one bit. He went from crying out in distress to talking to himself about God to bringing God into the situation at hand as if God had already moved. I can conclude that not only did David have an active prayer life, but David had an active prayer life in close communion, fellowship, and intimate relationship with God. I can tell you that studying David and the prayers he prayed while God was molding him into a king has taught me more about prayer than any seven-part series a pastor has ever preached or any book ever written by a modern author. Everything I'm going to share with you is true. I've dug into the Holy Bible and found it. It's there. These watches, these blocks of time, were actual watches that watchmen would serve the city, state, kingdom, to which they belong. I refer to them as watches of the watchmen for that reason. But you'll also hear me beginning to refer to them as the prayer watches. I am that convinced that the time and the prayer are tightly interwoven. Let's progress to the third watch, entering into the sixth hour beginning at midnight. This is the block of time when spiritual warfare is fiercest. I believe that. Why? Because most of us are normally sleeping when demonic forces of evil and wickedness are at their highest level. It is not that these evil forces are more prevalent among the wicked or the non-believers, but in the church as well. How do we know that? Let's look at a parable that Jesus shared in Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 30. And that reads, Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, the enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came to him and said, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. And the slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them. But gather the wheat into my barn. The enemy comes in the dead of night 
during the darkest hours. Remember the evil ones that Isaiah spoke of that came in the evening, howling and growling like dogs searching for food. By midnight, the darkness is deep, concealing that which moves in the darkness. What moves in the darkness? Rulers, powers, world forces of darkness, and spiritual forces of wickedness, as is told in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. The psalmist already knew this and strikes at the core of the time. Psalm 119, verse 62. At midnight I shall rise to give thanks to you because of your righteous ordinances. What is the psalmist saying? He is saying that he is going to get up at the beginning of the watch in the darkest hour of the night and give thanks to God for his righteous ordinances. And notice he didn't say anything about the law. The words statute and ordinance are ancient legal terms. A statute is a law. Laws can be fulfilled, amended, or repealed by the lawgiver. An ordinance is a final judgment, encompassing all nations forever. It is a time when the greatest evil stalks the land. It is also a time when releases have been supernaturally executed. Acts 16, verses 25 through 26, read all about it. It says, But at midnight Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately the doors opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. Hmm. Notices at midnight. Paul and Silas being held prisoners. But instead of sleeping, Paul and Silas were praying and singing praises to God. Even the other prisoners were listening to them. But here's the cap iron on the cutting blade. Suddenly, there was an earthquake. Suddenly, the foundation of the prison were shaken. Suddenly, the doors opened and chains were unfastened without a key. Paul and Silas were praying at midnight singing praises, while the other prisoners listened. That is a manifestation of spiritual warfare spilling over into the physical realm. Since when do earthquakes open unlocked doors and unfasten chains? Now consider the account of Gideon in Judges chapter 7. The account goes that God told Gideon that same night, to go down into the camp of Midian, for God had given it into Gideon's hand. It was God's plan to attack the enemy at night in the darkness. The account goes on to tell that 300 trumpets sounded, 300 torches blazed brightly, and 300 shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. The account tells us that the battle-hardened soldiers of the Midian camp began to cry out and flee. He goes on to say that when 300 trumpets sounded, the Midianite soldiers turned upon one another, each with their own sword. The book of Judges goes on to tell us that 135,000 of the Midian fell to the sword that night. That, my friends, is a manifestation of spiritual warfare spilling over into the physical realm. If you will recall, 
God went into Egypt at midnight on the night of Passover and took all the firstborn of Egypt. Yes, the darkest hours of the night are for killing. But I'm afraid that works both ways. Most recently, when Hamas attacked Israel from the Gaza Strip, they attacked October the 7th at 6.30 in the morning. That means that they were preparing for the attack pretty much all night long. The same can be said for the 911 terrorist attack in New York City and Washington, D.C. These final preparations were made from the early evening hours until the first day watch. This watch is definitely a time when evil forces are at work and working zealously to get the agenda of the enemy in place for execution of the enemy's plans. And there is no limit how low the enemy will sink to accomplish heinous deeds. If we look in the first Kings three twenty, we see how desperate the forces of evil can be. Make no mistake about it. Satanic forces, spiritual forces are ramping up during these hours across the world. First Kings three nineteen through twenty. This woman's son died in the night because she lay on it. As she arose in the middle of the night and took my son from beside me while your maidservant slept, and laid him in her bosom, and lay her dead son in my bosom. Now thankfully Solomon had the wisdom to rightly settle the dispute, but by no means confused grief with greed. The woman who lay on her son suffocating him was right to grieve, but to attempt to steal another son and keep him as her own is an evil undertaking. Here's where we get into trouble by trying to fix things ourselves instead of depending on God to work in the spiritual realm to align things to fit his will in the physical realm. Also, it's not something I've actually looked up any statistics on, but I suspect that the incidents of rape and sexually immoral acts are prevalent during this watch. Such cases account that we see in Judges 19 where a Levite's concubine was raped repeatedly and abused without mercy. A Levite was traveling with his concubine and a male servant, and an old man took them in and his party into the house for the night. Judges 19 verses 20 through 25 tell the rest of the story. While they were celebrating, behold, the men of the city, certain worthless fellows, surrounded his house, pounding on the door. And they spoke to the owner of the house, the old man, saying, Bring out the man who came to your house, that we may have relations with him. Wait a minute. Seems like I've heard that line in regard to Sodom and Gomorrah. Oh, well. Then the old man, the owner of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my fellows, please do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not commit this act of folly. Here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. Please let me bring them out that you may ravish them and do to them whatever you wish. But do not commit such an act of folly against this man. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine, brought her out to them, and they raped her and abused her all night long until morning. Then let her go at the approach of dawn. Remember that. He let her go at the approach of dawn. I'll cover that next week. So let's stop and think about this for a moment. 
Let's think for a moment, as unpleasant as it may be, about the human trafficking and the child trafficking that goes on in this world as I speak. Those poor souls and children are being raped and abused in much the same manner as this concubine was. Never mind the fact that she was a concubine, which doesn't say much for the morality of the Levite, but she was nothing more than a piece of meat to be devoured by the mob. Let's think for a moment about Sodom and Gomorrah. The same line was spoken by the mob of men outside the house that the angels of the Lord were staying. And likewise, the women of the house were offered to appease the lusts of the men outside. Now the LGBTQIA plus will tell you that Sodom and Gomorrah were not destroyed because of this homosexual behavior within two cities. They will say that the cities were destroyed because help was not given to the poor and needy as is mentioned in Ezekiel 16.49, and that reads, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease, but she did not help the poor and needy. That, according to LGBTQIA+, is the reason Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. The destruction of the two cities had nothing to do with homosexuality. But notice in Ezekiel 16.49 is directed at the daughters of Sodom. Said nothing about the men. And if it was not the homosexual behavior that brought judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah, it was certainly that which brought judgment upon Gibeah. And notice that the men of the city and judges were described as certain worthless fellows, demanding to have relations with the male guests of the house. These men were in Gibeah the city belonging to the tribe of Benjamin. If you read on through Judges in the chapter 20, you will see that judgment fell upon the tribe of Benjamin by the hands of Israel for the heinous act of repeatedly raping and abusing the concubine. Judgment fell upon Sodom and Gomorrah for the same reason, homosexual lust. It just so happened that this incident in Judges occurred in the middle of the night on the third watch. Let's move along to the extent that Jesus adhered to the watches of the watchmen, the prayer watches, if you will. When we left Jesus last week, he had gone out alone to pray on three occasions for a total of three hours. Each time he returned, he found the disciples asleep. And each time he admonished them for not keeping watch and praying with him. The last time he said, The hour has come that the Son of Man will be betrayed into the hands of sinners. At that moment, at midnight, as he was speaking, Judas, who was one of the twelve, appeared with a large crowd with swords and clubs who represented the chief priests and elders of the people. Matthew chapter 26, verses 48 through 56 tell us what happened. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him. Immediately Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Jesus said to him, Put your sword back in its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. 
Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will not at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? How then will the scriptures be fulfilled, which say that it must happen this way? And at that time Jesus said unto the crowds, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. Then all the disciples left him and fled. These were the opening moments of the third watch from midnight to 3 a.m. Spiritual warfare was going on in fierce fashion. In the physical realm, Peter had drawn a sword and cut off Malchus' ear. Jesus admonished Peter and restored the ear. Peter's action in the physical realm were putting God's will at risk. Even though cutting off the ear of a high priest's servant was discouraging to the men who came to seize Jesus. Jesus said basically, put the sword away. If you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Not only did Jesus save Peter's life and the lives of the disciples, he was making certain that the prophecies of the prophets of God would be fulfilled. Jesus had prayed. The Father's will was confirmed, and Jesus had accepted his mission to fulfill those prophecies as the Messiah. It was the first hour of the third watch. I say that's important. What most people, even Christians, don't realize is that at the time of Jesus' arrest, things happened rather quickly. Things happened more quickly than was normal for that day and time and certainly more quickly than the legal system moves in this day and time. The biblical record notes that Jesus followed the mob of men who seized him as far as the courtyard of the high priest, where he sat down with the officers of the court. The Bible conveys to us that the chief priest and the council of elders were attempting to obtain false witness against Jesus and were unable to do so. Eventually, two people came forth and said that Jesus said that he would tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days. Naturally, the high priest stood and demanded an answer from Jesus in regard to these charges, but on the charges, Jesus remained silent. The high priest had demanded that Jesus tell him if he was the Messiah, the Son of God, and Jesus answered him with Scripture. Consider Daniel 7.13. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. The remainder of the third was Jesus spent in the courts of the high priest and elder council being judged. Which I find ironic, because the council of priests did not recognize that they were indeed facing the judge. Spiritual warfare is an odd means of obtaining God's will in the minds of most Christians. Even the cruelest practices are used in the physical realm to obtain God's will in the physical and spiritual realms. Jesus fulfilled Isaiah 53 verse 7 during the third watch. In Isaiah 53 verse 7 reads, He was oppressed and he was afflicted yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before shearers, 
so he did not open his mouth. The third watch is when satanic activity ramps up in the earth. Don't have any doubts about that. Yet it is a time of sudden release, as with Paul, Silas, even Peter. You can throw Peter's name in the hat, too. It was a time when atrocities unmentionable are being planned and put into action. It is the time when the Lord Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach, accepting God's will, was arrested and tried by Caiaphas. It seems to be injustice. However, it was in fact establishing justice. For those who believe and obey, making the commitment to follow and pray justice will be served in the end. A prayer life is good. A prayer life birthed out of love and commitment is unstoppable. Prayer to summon the hosts of the Lord for your deliverance that you may be suddenly released. Pray and give praise to an almighty God who is pleased to crush him that we may live. That concludes the third watch. I am the old watchman, Ezekiel, and you have been warned. Well, that's all for now. I thank you for your time and participation. Our time together is precious to me. Please, come and visit me at theoldwatchman.com for show notes, articles, video content, book reviews, Bible study material reviews, and Bible study methods. It's my hope and prayer that you get to know me through this podcast. Through the website at theoldwatchman.com, I can get to know you. If you like the content, consider following The Old Watchman on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. See you next time. May nothing in your life be missing. Nothing in your life be broken. Shalom.